American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American. Timelines. Timelines. Why do you have to always do it? Sorry, like I'll behind stop. me. Like I'll that? stop. You just do this. Do no, it again. you do it wrong on purpose. I think. Well, I I keep trying to think of something different, and it always ends up the same thing. All right, try it again. Okay. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. I'm Amy, and you're Joe. All right. You're Amy, and I'm Joe. The other day, when I was really having a a tough time focusing. <laughs> Because of my stupid ADD, you offered me a half of one of your Adderalls to see if it helped. I don't know if that's illegal. And I yeah, it is illegal, <laughs> and you probably shouldn't be mentioning it. But it didn't work for me. It made me more nervous, and it made me like on edge. I felt like I had a thousand cups of coffee. I was like, I felt like I was on crack. And then I found out Adderall is like basically meth, right? It's like the same it's ingredient. An amphetamine. That's crazy. So. I was on meth for a day. I had a meeting that day. I must have been, been like a crazy person. Anyway, hated it. Felt awful. Um, you took half an Adderall. I know. I you know. Was... on meth for a day. Yeah. It's a little bit dumb. <laughs> but anyway, that was the effect it had on me, and I, I guess I'm susceptible to medicine. So that just goes more to say this magic mind stuff that I've been yeah. trying, which I'm currently out of. Uh, but that stuff really works and because i'm susceptible to medicine and it doesn't do that to me but it does help me focus um and it helps me drink less coffee so i talked to you guys about magic mind before if you haven't listened to that episode it's a little tiny green elixir that takes like one second to drink and it tastes like fruits and vegetables uh tastes like apples to me kind of it's kind of sweet um Anyway, but it helps me uh, focus more and gives me hours of of things and it helps me drink less coffee also, uh, which is really cool. And I think uh, apparently the science behind it is more to do with the ingredients. Uh, Bacopa monnieri, which is a natural nootropic that helps with procrastination. It's just supposed to be like a natural Adderall. Uh, so mm. and they say... They say that procrastination is more based on stress in your cortisol levels, which is something coffee spikes. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, rather than being lazy, when people call oh, people with, you know, lazy. Yeah, lazy, it's not really mm -hmm. that. It's partly your stress. It can shut you down. Anyway, uh, so we have this solution. It's called Magic Mind. It's a delicious little drink. It doesn't take long. If you're like me and medicine makes you jittery and awful. Uh, try Magic Mind, and you just so happen to be able to get a discount using our link. Uh, go to magicmind.co slash ATL, and your discount code is ATL for American Timelines. Uh, go to ATL. So check it out. You can get up to 40% off a, a subscription, and uh, that's the way to go. I need to re-up my subscription because I need some more uh, to make me concentrate better. 
Anyway, it works for me, and it could work for you. And thanks to Magic Mind for giving us a discount. What what? And supporting American Timelines. Yes. And helping American Timelines reach more listeners. And today we are talking about May and June of nineteen fifty six. And before we start, yes, before we start, let's plug. Let's plug the Black Sorry. Guy Who Tips. The Black Guy Who Tips is a podcast Amy's all excited about because we were just a guest on their podcast. T B G W T. TBGWT, is that right? I can I can type it out. Yeah, anyway. It's Rod and Karen, and they were on an episode of our podcast a while back. I don't even remember which one. We'd have to look it up. Um, but they are super cool and super nice, uh, and they had just gone uh, they had just gone to Spotify, I think, when we had them last time. Um, and so they uh, reached out to us to have, be guests on their show and they do a live video while they do their show and i remember you and i talked about that at one point or i mentioned it to you aim yeah like hey we should try that yeah um but you were like no well we need to have like a background or i mean we're like in the garage it's weird yeah we are in the garage but it's that's weird. why i got these backdrops I now know, it's got our logo and yeah. stuff but we'd also have to be ready and not screw up and you know a lot there's a lot of editing in our episodes you know, we have to... Because you don't shut up. Uh, a lot of times I edit out, edit out your anger or the dogs barking or you talking, <laughs> baby, talk to the dogs or whatever. All or right. me screwing up. So, anyway, let's jump right in because people hate all the talk up uh, top, up top, probably. People want us to get right into murders and history. That's what we do on American Timelines. We talk about a crazy murder. Because that, that's the crazy thing about American history is there's at least one gruesome, awful murder a month. Yes. That made the news that we talk about. Although you're kind I'm that's kind of a fib right now because I couldn't locate anything in America this time. So oh, this is so in we England. Went outside of America. Yes. It's okay. in England this yeah. time. Well, there's still hmm. I mean in history there's lots of gross murders cuz But I don't know is it is it because there's so much murders or because we're now as a society love to talk about it and look it up and get all fascinated we're, well, the, all, we're a family there's we're more a, news i mean information is so freely available that yeah you know and people are interested in that now because everybody's a rubbernecker that's what i think true crime fans are sorry true crime fans they're like rubberneckers they're like no no it's right? uh, mostly it's people who like a good story and crime is a good story it's got yeah, a yeah. problem it's got conflict yeah you know and it's you're got, right i'm wrong touche i'm an idiot our listeners are great Okay. And great looking. Okay, now we're jumping into <laughs> This is May. the murder of the Ormisher sisters. Yeah, so we're starting with Amy because it happened on May 5th, 1956. Yes. Say it again. The Ormisher. The Ormisher sisters? How do you spell that? O-R-M-E-S-H-E-R. Okay, the Ormisher sisters. And this took place in Ormskirk, Lancashire, England in 1956. Ooh. Um, Kirk stands for church or means church. I know that. Despite national media coverage and an extensive investigation, the identity of the murderer has never been established. Really? A mystery. Yeah, so the one of our listeners remains open and the case remains one of the 15 unsolved solve. murders being investigated by Lancashire police. Wow, you guys could li- you listeners, if you have ambition, you could be the so- person who solves the this. The web sleuth. Yeah. So sisters Mar- Margaret Jane Ormisher who is 68, okay. And Mary Ormisher who is 67. Probably pronounced Ormisher. Omisha, yeah, had lived in 
Ormskirk all their lives. Okay. Margaret and Mary were born to Edward and Emma Ormisher. Okay. Emma and Emma, she had been Emma Foster, and then okay. she married Edward Ormisher in 1888. Okay. When they were in their early 20s. That was a long time ago. Yes. And um, they had Mary and Margaret, and then they had some other kids, okay. May and Emily. But anyway, um, they were, this is uh, the these old ladies' parents, right? They were um, active publicans, which means they owned a pub. Really? They called yeah. them publicans? They called them publicans, yes. That's really a thing? Yes. I never once knew that was a thing. I learned something new today. So these, there was this act called the 1830 Beer Act. Okay. And it allowed all the dwellings in Britain to turn themselves from houses into pubs. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> and, cool. And freely selling alcohol. And it seemed that Ormskirk had taken full advantage of this change in the law. Oh, my gosh. That explains so much yes. about the England, UK. The UK, England. yeah. By 1869, there were 98 beer houses in Ormskirk District, including 76 inns, public houses, and hotels. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. So Everybody's it, drinking. Yeah, basically. yeah. So Edward began running the John Bull Beer House in Chapel Street, where he and his family lived with a 24-year-old woman called Annie Birdsley, okay. who worked as a servant for them. Okay. There's little detail as to why, but it seemed that the John Bull was known as the worst pub in the town. And it lost its license sometimes between 1901 and 1911. Really? And by 1911, Emma and Edward had decided to have another go at running a pub. So, um, It seems like it would be hard to lose your license is if they made it that easy for everybody right? to become a pub. Like so what in the world? It must have been pretty bad. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> they were living with three of their daughters at the Brickmaker's Arms in uh, Osmal Lane. Okay. Margaret, also styling herself as Maggie at this point, had left home to okay. work as a servant for the Keisel family who lived on Highfield Greet by Hill. So, unfortunately, the Brickmaker's Arms Pub also lost its license. Okay. It's fair to say that on the available evidence, the Ormishers were not cut out to be innkeepers. Yeah, at this point, it's it's on you. It's not just a, yeah. you, you got to take ownership of that. But right. the family stayed at Asmal Lane, which was converted into a normal family dwelling, now going by the name of Ivy Dean. Okay. In fact, the spacious 10-room house with its own private courtyard uh, would some 50 years later be the scene of the heinous double murder that continues to stump Lancashire constabulary to this day. Wait. It, it continues to say that sentence again that you clearly didn't write? I didn't write this. It, conti <laughs> it continues to stump Lancashire constabulary to this day. Constabulary? Uh, can you dumb that down for the dumb guy? What's a constabulary? I think it's a constable. Constables? Yeah, constables. Co is that how you say it? Constabulary? Constabulary? That's what I figured. I don't know. It might wow. be wrong. Constables. Wow. Constabulary. The constables of a district, collectively. I was right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, you are right, but I just... Never heard that word before, but it makes yeah, sense have. when you sound it out and say it out. The more you know. Yeah, a civil non-paramilitary force consisting of police officers called constable. So then anyway, Margaret and Mary grow up, and they okay. oh, they run a tobacconist <laughs> and a sweet shop oh, in okay. Ormskirk. Oh, my God, that's great for your teeth. <laughs> right? The tobacco and the sweet shop. Tobacco and sweets. It's safe that's to assume really that they took over the family business from their parents. Okay. So there's some evidence to support this from a 1915 issue of the Ormskirk Advertiser. Wow. Um, it, that doesn't matter. Let me skip that. Hold on. Okay, hold let's on, just skip on. that, do, even do, though do, 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 that was do, exciting. Do. So um, they 
die. Edward and Emma, okay. mom and dad. They're older. And Margaret and Maggie are the ones that get the house. Okay. Um, they were very odd, these old ladies. Yeah. They were like under five foot tall for okay. one thing. Okay. They both were? Yes, they were both under five feet. Um, That's adorable. They never married. They were um, separated Spinsters. by just two years from the younger Emily, who would marry John William Allen, a van driver for a local greengrocers. Hmm. The youngest Ormisher girl, May, was nine years Emily's senior, the truly isolated younger child. She married John Brierley in 1926. But despite May and Emily going to start families of their own, Mary and Margaret remained single until their deaths. Okay, so Mary and Margaret were the, the ones who died. They're... They're the ones who are the victims. Gonna die. We know they both spent time as servants. That's another thing we know about them. Yeah, it seems like it's a common thing around here. So um, it's safe to assume that around this time, when their mother their mother was dying in 1951, they took over the family shop. Okay. And uh, the Lancashire Evening Post reported after the sisters were found dead that Emily and May had died sometime before the Mary and Margaret. Oh. Meaning that the sisters were possibly the last two people alive in their whole in family. In their whole family, so there's nobody to really say anything. Um, by the time they were murdered, the Ormisher sisters typified the stereotypical frail old lady. They were quiet, went out of their way to help others, and never seemed to pose any threat. Aw, little old ladies. Um, Mary was known to regular customers at the sweet shop as Aunt Polly. <laughs> um, and so there was this w- woman who lived above the sister's shop okay. with her husband. Her name was Josephine Mary Whitehouse, and um, she lived above the shop with the husband, F- John Frederick Whitehouse. Okay. The inquiries held after the murder revealed that Mrs. Whitehouse almost acted as a carer to the sisters, so she would take care of them. Okay. She That's accom- what a carer is. And so <laughs> every night, this woman would accompany Mary home from the shop. Okay. And walk with her up to the front door of her house, which was bolted from the inside, before Margaret let her sister in. Okay. Mary was not permitted to have her own front door key. Oh. The sisters always kept the back door locked, although Mary had told Mrs. Whitehouse that Margaret had a habit of opening the back door if she heard a sound. Uh. And there were also reports that the sisters sometimes went to bed as late as 1 a.m. Really? And they were Night qu- owls. Yeah. So they were quiet, small, frail, a little odd. Uh, they were also making a lot of money. And they weren't spending any of it. Really? So uh, there was these rumors that Mary and Margaret had 3,000 pounds hidden away somewhere. Uh-oh. And that yeah, was a so that word, fortune. that word gets out and yes. you become a target. So it was Saturday, May 5th, right? Yep. Mary had walked. 1956. It's a Saturday, May yep. 5th. She had walked the kilometer or so back from her shop to her home at Ivy Dean. She carried with her a brown case, which contained the shop's weekly takings. This particular week, it amounted to 150 pounds, over 3,700 pounds in today's money. This was the first night in almost six years that Mary had walked home alone. And she walked home alone the same, the night after the 82nd Kentucky Derby, where David Erb won aboard Needles. Needles? Yeah. So, this was the first time she'd walked alone without Mrs. Whitehouse. Okay. Because Mrs. Whitehouse had gone to visit um, her husband. She'd gone to visit Southport with her husband. So anyway. um, So she was by herself. And she wasn't usually by herself. She was usually more careful. So there was this man named John Wright who was a laborer. He also lived on Asthma Lane. And he said he saw Margaret enter the garden gate of Ivy Dean around 6.45 p.m. Okay. Um, He said she was wearing a dark gray coat, a black hat, but he didn't notice whether she was carrying anything. Hmm. 
Mary Jane Sefton of Halsall Lane, which yeah. connected to Asmal Lane, saw Mary pass her bedroom window between 10.10 and 10.25 Boy, that's PM. a lot later than the other one. Right. Mary was alone and carrying the brown case containing the shop takings in her right hand. At 10 p.m. Huh. Yeah. So Mary had walked home alone. The sun had set before nine in the dark and through street dimly lit by gas lamps. You know, you got to imagine that they had gaslight back then. Right. I mean, that's what it says here, at least. In 1956. Yeah, I guess that's what it says here. All right. Other neighbors said she was carrying something in her left hand that they couldn't identify, but there was no suggestion that she or Margaret had been followed home. Like, nobody... There was no suspicion yeah. of anybody else. Then, at 10.18 p.m., another neighbor... I wonder if this is a normal time for them to be coming home. Yeah, I don't know. Um, this other neighbor said they saw a man across the road from Ivy Dean, and within an hour, um, various different neighbors heard, like, groans and raised male voices and bin lids clattering and glass breaking and stuff, oh. all coming from their house. Really? But nobody did anything. Nobody called the police or anything. Nobody checked. They're yeah. just like, oh, okay. Well. So yeah. then Miss Whitehouse comes back from Southport with her husband on Sunday, May 6th. Okay. And so as she always did, she takes a cup of tea to the shop in Church Street to give to Mary, but she finds it locked because nobody was there to unlock it. Right. By 11 a.m., she was growing worried and decided to walk to Ivy Dean and knock on the door. So she does that. Nobody answers. So she goes to the neighbor, Patrick Cummins. Okay. And Patrick Cummins. He's an upstanding young man, I'm he sure. sure. Yeah. So they go around the house, around to the back door, and um, they see blood, a trail of blood. Okay. Quit looking at whatever that I was is gonna, on your I was going to say she got home the same day that... American jazz tuba player Brad Felt was born. All right. Sorry. God damn it. Okay, sorry. All right. So they see blood. Yeah. Gross. Um, so blood he says gross. to her, like stay here. I I don't want you to get hurt. I'll check out what's happening inside the house. In case you just a stay threat. here. Yeah. Um so That's a good fella. That's a nice fella. That's chivalrous. He runs back out, mm -hmm. tells her to go call the police. Okay. What he found um, was terrible, he said. Mary and Margaret were found in a pool of their own blood. Oof. They were still wearing their cardigans. Oof. They had been battered um, about the head and upper body with a number of discarded items that were left around them. Candlesticks, a wine bottle, and a poker, which had been bent out of shape oh by gosh. the strength of the blows. beating the crap out of these two old Yes. Mary's brown case was found open on the kitchen table, and 100 pounds was missing, but not all of it. That was like half of it. Was only they didn't missing. take all of it? No. And there was a That's ring weird. and a watch missing. The only clue left by the murderer at the scene was a single bloody fingerprint found on a shard of broken glass from the wine bottle. Oh, whose fingerprint was it? I don't know. So, oh. the response oh, we don't know. That's right, to these murders. Yeah. Yeah. The response to these murders was like immediate. It, it was all over the news. Really? It, this kind of thing didn't happen, you know? And so. Um, Not in this. Berg. Police visited luggage offices and dry cleaners, hoping to find reports of bloodied clothing due to the state of the bodies. The killer must have been, you know, soaking in blood. Yeah. Doctors were asked if they had treated anyone for cuts or bruises, as the oh, killer yeah. must have received wounds of his own in the violent struggle. Solid place work. Liverpool police even chipped in, visiting lodgings in the city, searching for the mystery drifter who had violently murdered the two women. But so Liverpudlians were involved. They were. But all police inquiries were fruitless. 
The only real clue police had to go on was from an 11-year-old boy who lived opposite Ivy Dean. Oh. Barry Houghton had seen a man leaning against a blue bicycle with white mud guards for three nights in a row. Uh-huh. I remember him quite clearly, the 11-year-old <laughs> told the Echo. He seemed to be glancing up and down the road all the time. It was last Wednesday night that I saw him about 10 p.m. He must have been there for about half an hour. I saw him then again on Thursday night, but he wasn't there on Saturday. Boy, fetch the goose for me and the <laughs> I window. guess I should stop there. I'll stop there. <laughs> Sounds accent. like Christmas Carol. Uh, no. Barry told police that the man looked to be like in his 30s. He was about six feet in height, mm-hmm. and he was wearing a trench coat. With dark trousers. Ooh, that's not, not wearing a hat, which back then. Yeah, if you big didn't wear a hat. Deal. Yeah, something weird is going on. And he had dark hair, was clean shaven. The 11 year old boy made the front pages of the whole evening post yeah. with this story. Being a witness. So this guy was casing the joint, we think. I he guess. Was there for several days. Because the police were out of real information to go on. Um, there was more than 300 posters went up around town. Um, they, they looked at their cousin who had been staying in the area at the time of the murders and was known to travel everywhere by bike, but there was no evidence there. So by May 11th, it had come to light that the (coughs) sisters had run a sideline business in money lending from their home. Uh Oh, an underground money lending business. Yeah. They had loan slips, some for a hundred pounds that were found at Ivy Dean and police had possibly found a new motive for the killer. Oh yeah. Um, and they also had provided accommodations to evacuees from Liverpool during the war. Oh, okay. And police began checking the names of the children who had stayed with them, but nothing came of that investigation. Okay. By the end of May, the police were once again out of ideas. The Lancaster Constabulary Superintendent Lindsay told the Echo that he was receiving daily anonymous letters about the murders, but he really? had no fresh clues. Yeah. Um, they took the fingerprints of every man age 18 and over in Ormskirk hoping to find a match. Oh my gosh. Um, but they did not. Huh. So it could have been a teenager. Because there was eight years before that method had caught this other killer named Peter Griffiths who was 19 year old and raped and killed a three year old girl in Blackburn. Oh my gosh. And they took 40,000 fingerprints. Yeah. But and they it matched it with that one guy? Yes. Wow. So by September 1956, 10,000 fingerprints have been taken by Lancashire Constabulary. I just like to say that now. You With love saying constabulary. 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 Did I say it wrong? I don't yeah, know. Probably. That same month, a black American man was questioned by the police in connection to the killings. Wait, a black American black man? Black American man. I guess what I was said he that doing weird. there? Um, I guess he was visiting. Oh, I guess Americans could could visit. I was just like surprised that they would. Why would they? Well, just, it was after the war, so who knows? I would say that they just fly to America and just try to blame it on that oh, guy. Oh, right, I don't know, but that was uh, yielded no results because okay. the man matched none of the characteristics of the police suspect, not huh. even the same race. Uh, but that was the closest the police ever came to finding the Ormisher's killer. Well, by, how would they know the race of the? Well, the little boy told. Oh, he said. Oh, yeah, he remember. Yeah, so by June 1957, it was revealed that the sisters had been sitting on 1,700 pound fortune and Ooh. had written no will. So the money was divided between their living relatives. With the case now cold, the shop on Church Street was demolished. I think it's got to be a, a relative because why would they not take all the money? Well, they were. I they mean, only they take... were money hoarders. They worked <clears throat> seven days a week. They yeah. had no immediate family. I'm saying it's like the person took. Only look the watches and stuff, but they took just a specific amount of money. So it must have been somebody in dire straits that needed a specific amount of money. Like maybe they owed somebody something, you know, like mm-hmm. 
They had a debt to pay because they left the rest of the money. Right. So maybe they knew there had to be somebody that was borrowing money. That's what I think. They probably knew some of the other people, you know, had money. Well, then in February 1983, someone made an anonymous phone call to the Manchester Evening News. Yeah. They claimed to know the identity of the murder. It's 30 years later. The the call is believed to have come from an elderly man in his 70s who deeply regretted withholding vital information from the police since that night in 1956. The information was passed to Lancashire police, who identified and investigated the suspect, and nothing more came of it. Ugh. So, to this day, no one's been arrested in connection to the deaths of Mary and Margaret Ormisher, and Lancaster Constabulary continues to investigate the murder. Man. And you did a lot of searching and research, and do you have any, like... Well, Wikipedia, and hold on, there, let me do... Hold I'm on. just wondering, like, you're sure that it hasn't been solved, like, there's not going to be a... Yeah. Unsolved Mysteries episode. Well, I, I saw that, I that saw. yesterday. It was solved. Not that I saw. What other, uh, you got any other uh, references you want to? Yes. Um, Lanks Live, Lanks.Live, like Lancaster, I think. Okay. Uh, got a lot of that. Got most of that. Okay. Uh, Murder of the Ormister Sisters Wikipedia. Hi. Uh, Web Sleuths had some, some discussion. But it's still... And Unsolved, huh? Yeah, never found. And that's the whole story of the. That's now you know the rest of the story. Ormisher sisters. Well, that's what I figured, you know. Yeah, that's uh, that is an interesting. I never said I was a good researcher, so get off my back. No, nobody said that. We're just going through everything, everything that's ever happened. We will cover on American timelines. <laughs> so if we cover every single thing that's ever happened. We can't go into complete detail. We're not the best researchers. No, not even good ones. Yeah, we're not even good people. I mean, you're a terrible person, and we're just covering... No, I'm just kidding. I love you. Okay, and now we're going to jump into the rest of May and June. Are you ready for this ride, Aim? Do you need a break? Are we good? I always need a break. Yeah, I always need a break for everything. Hey, nerds, check out the Groff and Loud Show on YouTube. Edie Falco. Yeah. Are you familiar with Edie Falco? I I'm I I am a little bit more than aware of Edie Falco. I'm a fan of anything I've seen Edie Falco in. I'm a fan. I've been a fan of her work. Now, when you say fan, you're saying you're a fanatic. You're fanatical about Edie Falco. I I do understand where fan comes from, and I would like to <laughs> take this time to retract. <laughs> retract your statement. Well, if you're going right, to throw out fan place. as fanatic. No, I'm not a. I'm. Not, I am aware. And I've if you saw if you saw Candace Bergen on the street, would you fangirl? I mean, uh, Edie Falco. Edie Falco. Yeah. Both. I would hope that I have the presence of mind to say thank you. Okay, you're in a three-way with Edie Falco, Irving Levine, and you. Who are you giving most attention to? Oh, Edie Falco. Okay. Check out the Groff and Loud show on YouTube. So we are going to skip all the way to May 12th, 1956. That works for me. And this is a fictional thing that happened on May 12th, 1956, possibly. But it's a, also a, a fictional birthday. Wait a minute. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. All right, hold on a minute. <laughs> what? we got to have some rules now. Well, here. according to... Because I'm not an All Easter right. egg in the show The Simpsons. In okay. Season four, episode sixteen. We're given a quick glimpse of Homer's driver's license, 
which reveals his birth date Ooh. to be May 12th, 1956. Oh, I like that. You see? That's why I knew you'd like because you like The Simpsons. Yeah. So only some people have noticed this, I guess. So you wouldn't notice it if you're just casually paying attention. He was born to Abraham Simpson and Mona Olson, raised on the Simpson family farm until they were forced to move out due to Homer jumping out of a hay bale and scaring the cows into giving sour milk. That's right. Causing the pink to foreclose. You remember that? Yeah, I do. Gosh, you really do know a lot of Simpsons. So the thing about that, Old though. Old Simpsons. Like, no, I don't know Bart, any of the new, new stuff. Bart was born in the 70s. So Right. But they never aged. So that's the whole thing. is they Because they never aged and it started in 89, so I guess. Yeah, they're and like. He was a 10-year-old. It's like constantly in 89. Yeah, so he was born in 79, I think. So Time doesn't go past. Yeah, so he would now, like Bart Simpson technically is, I don't know, 40 or something. Well, whoever, 50, probably. Not 50. No. Well, if he was born in the 70s. 79. I was oh, born 79. in 79. I'm not 50, 79. and I was born in the 70s. I, th- I didn't hear you say 79. God, get off my back. Yo. Jesus Christ. Whoa, things aren't going well in the marriage because of this. Uh, May 17th. We're going to jump all over May 17th, and I got a double birthday, and then it will be done with birthday. Just this, this is a real birthday. These are real people. You okay. like the last one. Okay. So <clears throat> a double birthday. Two celebrities were born on the same day. I'm going to tell you the types of celebrities, and you have to guess both of them. Uh, one is a dead sitcom star, but also was a filthy comedian. The other one is a lightweight, lightweight boxer. Oh, my God. And the other one is a what? Lightweight boxer. Lightweight, lightweight boxer, boxer. cruiserweight boxer. How the fuck am I going to know what a, a cruiserweight boxer is? Well, he was a boxer. He was he was f- most famous when he fought marvelous Marvin Hagler in the eighties. That helps me none. Uh, his his nickname is Sweet. Sweet, sweet. Um, his nickname, sweet, sweet. No, no, his Back's nick, badass no, his, song. No, no, his nickname isn't sweet. His nickname is is a sweet substance. Sugar Ray Leonard. Yes, they were both born on May seventeenth, nineteen fifty six, and they could be twins. Bob Sag was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to a Jewish family. They could be twins. Yeah, his uh, father Benjamin was a supermarket executive, and his mother Rosalind was a hospital administrator. And then he moved to Norfolk, Virginia, for a little bit. And then they moved to Encino, neighborhood of Los Angeles, where Bob Saget, as a teenager, met Larry Fine of the Three Stooges and heard various stories from Fine. That's what you were talking about on that other. Yeah. You, yeah. Larry Fine was a uh, uh, in a nursing home or something. And so Bob Saget had heard he had all these stories and he oh went God. and volunteered and talked to Bob to Larry Fine all the time. I bet that was amazing. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great to meet one of the Stooges as a teenager yes. and hear all those stories? So that was kind of cool. Uh, but then they moved back to Philadelphia prior to his senior year, and he ended up graduating from Arbington Senior High, whose team colors are maroon and white, home of the Galloping Ghosts. They were named after Red Grange. Other notable alumni include Eddie George, Heisman Trophy winner, and Florence LaRue. You know who that is? No. Lead singer of the Fifth Dimension. Quick, what do they sing? When the moon is <laughs> in the seventh house, and Jupiter aligns with Mars. There's a lot of people in fifth dimension. Let the sun shine. Yeah. Age of Aquarius. Anyway, Saga was going to be a doctor, but his honors English teacher 
told him to seek a career in films. So that person was smart. And Sugar Ray Leonard was born in Wilmington, North Carolina. Did you know that? He's a North Carolinian. I didn't know that. And he was named after Ray Charles, his mother's favorite singer. Oh, How about that? Ray Charles is great. Anyway. So his real first name wasn't Sugar? His first name wasn't Sugar. It was Ray. I'm just kidding. Like, I wouldn't. But they settled in Palmer Park, Maryland when he was 10. His father was a supermarket night manager. So two, both the guys were born on the same day and both their fathers were in supermarket jobs. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. And Bob Saget's mom was a hospital administrator. Sugar Ray's mother was a nurse. So it's just so many parallels. I know. He attended Parkdale School, home of the Panthers, Forest Green and Gold. And that's all we'll talk about. That was birthdays. And because we've got to jump all the way to May 26, 1954, because on that early morning, yeah. fighter jets started to catapult into the air from the USS Bennington, an oh. Essex-class aircraft carrier. Oh. Uh, they called it the Big Ben, and it measured 899 feet, three football, football fields long, right? It was built in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. The Navy commissioned her in 1944. But after World War II, the Navy modernized the USS Bennington with high-powered catapults to launch the new jet planes that had come into service. Did you know that they catapulted jets into the air on, no. on aircraft carriers? I didn't know that either. I don't know a lot about I guess there's no runway, war. so you kind of have to. Yeah, there's a small runway, but it catapults and gives you like that boost, I guess. And so the flight training operations took place at the entrance to Narragansett Bay. I've never <laughs> known how to it. say that. That's how you say it. I looked it up. Narragansett I always thought it was Narangaset, but it's Narragansett, according to YouTube pronunciation. Anyway, the Big Ben had left Norfolk, Virginia. Sailors aboard the ship reported the sea looked like a sheet of glass. At 6 a.m., the first jet on the starboard catapult failed to launch. But over the next 13 minutes, the port catapult flung 13 jets into flight. Then the men on the bridge saw smoke curling up from both sides of the forward flight deck. An alarm sounded with an announcement. General quarters, this is not a drill. General quarters means every available man must return to his battle station immediately. Wow. That's what general quarters means. Okay. Soon after the announcement, an explosion thundered below deck, and then another, and then reportedly another. On board were 2,300 men commanded by Captain William F. Rayborn. Machinist Jack Douglas Rich had just awakened in his bunk when the general alarm rang. He smelled the smoke and saw it coming through the vents. Rich threw on his clothes and rushed to, to his station. Lithographer third-class William Kirk was putting on his pants, uh, one leg at a time like everybody does, when he (laughs) felt the first explosion. It felt like a concussion, see? A big suction. He wrote uh, in a letter to a friend. That's where that quote came from. My stomach went up and down, see? It felt sickening. The deck moved. The whole ship seemed to rock and shake. I went sailing into another bunk rack, see? That's how everybody talked in the 50s. Oh, right. Kirk got knocked down, then he ran up the ladder. The f- that first explosion trapped the damage control unit and all perished before help reached them. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> God bless you. It's a cough. <coughs> you just stop smoking. The expl- I don't smoke. The explosion also killed one of the doctors in the sick bay, but Commander Clyde Norman, the ship's medical officer, and all hospital corpsmen made it. Nice. That They would be desperately needed. The smoke and smell of burning flesh was everywhere, recalled Rich. By 7.25 a.m. Rich Norm- Holland? No, Jonathan Rich. I think oh. Uh, Never mind. Jack Douglas Rich. Uh, uh, by 7.25 a.m., Norman ordered the already overflowing sick bay moved out in the open on the undamaged flight deck. 
The explosions had done most of the damage. The surviving crew went to work lighting fires and rescuing the injured. Oh, man. At 10.25 a.m., the first helicopters from Quonset reached the carrier with doctors, nurses, medical supplies, and more corpsmen. The same helicopters would pick up casualties from the ship and ferry them to Newport Naval Hospital, landing on lawns, parking lots, and city streets cleared for emergency landings. Oh, my God. In the meantime, Big Ben, whose power plant remained undamaged by the explosion, had gotten underway, no doubt at full speed, back to Quonset Point. Five tugs assisted the USS Bennington in docking at Quonset. Rather than the deck lined with sailors in dress white uniforms, an awesome sight to see, face blackened sailors with oxygen masks slung over their shoulders lined the deck. Mm. Fire raged for four hours before the men brought it under control. Petty Officer Third Class Francis Both said the engine room looked like hell as he pulled dead fellow sailors out of the compartment. Seaman Bruno Constantini, seaman, was asleep in his bed when the fire broke out, but he ran to the hangar deck in time to help rescue ten of his shipmates. Oh, that's nice. James H. Brown, disregarding his chance to reach safety, instead made his way into harm's way below and saved the lives of several sailors. He himself received burns and injuries requiring extensive hospitalization. For his action, he received the Navy and Marine Corps Medal. And Navy Charles Thomas, Navy Secretary Charles Thomas gave 178 awards for heroism to crewmen of the USS Bennington on April 22, 1955. Very cool. Uh, in the aftermath, a court of inquiry determined that the leaking hydraulic from the catapult system vaporized and ignited, causing the explosions. As a result of this finding, the Navy converted all the catapults on its carriers to steam-driven systems, mm -hmm. and they further designated the tragedy as the second worst disaster aboard a naval vessel not caused by enemy action in naval history. All said and done, 104 officers and men died in the explosion, 139 others injured. That's crazy, huh? That is crazy! That was all according to the New England Historical Society. Thank you, New England Historical Society. Good thing New England has a historical society, or we wouldn't have been able to tell that story. That's right. On American Timelines by History for Jerks. And then closing out May of 1956... Uh, on May 30th, a, a bus boycott began in Tallahassee, Florida. Like bus boys? According We're to... We're laying on cots? Is that what you mean? No. Like a bus boy cot? Have you ever heard of the Montgomery bus boycott? Oh. Similar to that. So go oh. ahead. Make light of it. Whoops. Sorry. White privilege. I, no, I thought uh, I was making a show because <laughs> I really did at first think you well, were talking according, something about bus boy. According to the Zinn Education Project... I love on, the Zen Education Project. On May 26, 1956, Wilhelmina Jakes and Carrie Patterson, both students from Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, FAMU, uh, sat down in the whites-only section of a segregated bus in Tallahassee. When they refused to move, the bus driver pulled into a local service station and called the police. The Tallahassee police arrested both students, charging them with placing themselves in a position to incite a riot. Ugh. In response, students at FAMU organized a campus-wide boycott of the city buses that attracted the support of local community members. One local community leader, Reverend C.K. Steele, helped establish the Inter-Civic Council, the ICC, to coordinate the boycott. Like the Montgomery bus boycott, the organization created a carpool system to provide alternative transportation for local residents and students. Do you think, serious yeah. question. Yeah. Do you think white people could ever do that? You think white people could what? Like... Black Americans have banded together yeah. to fight for their rights and successfully done so. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
and um, they sacrificed. Like these bus boycotts, people had to walk like five miles, ten miles to yeah. work. And they did it for over a year for Montgomery boys bus boycott. Yeah. It was over a year long. And, you know, they, they would try to do carpools, and then the police would bust them and tell them they yeah. can't do that anymore and stuff. And, I mean, they sacrificed so much. And they they just, um, the community feeling, and you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like. Supported each other and everything. and yeah. Right. I think in general, not, not taken away from you know the resilience of amazing black people but i feel like a lot of times poor people and working class people yeah are just conditioned are just made different like they've just like think about how you know, and they're not made different they're not, not made, made different, different but they but trauma they're used to dealing but tra- with yeah. but a trauma um your brain changes like i did a i did a in a training on this and uh-huh. your your whole the chemistry of your brain changes the physical makeup of your brain changes because of trauma and if you li- if you live in poverty yeah. Um, your whole life is traumatic. Your, your whole life is trauma. And then black people, the racism then, they've had to right. deal with on then, top of that is, right. are probably Adds the to most trauma. resilient people you'd ever and, see. So and, it, and yeah, they so just, it's like. Their will of the civil rights movement. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. But yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't, I can't, it doesn't seem like <laughs> it, white people would do that. But I'm I mean, sure you white can people find are always been on top. Of, so I guess I'm just thinking like. In America. Poor, I mean, like, you think like, about. I'm thinking about like, you know, Jew, Jewish people yeah. have been through stuff. Yeah, you know, we can that, think of it like that. that. Are considered white or whatever, but yeah, not saying oh yeah, yeah, not to take it any way from any group except well, for I, us privileged white people who haven't done shit. Right, right. But yeah, I don't know, man. I, I often don't understand how they could like do how did why, how did like I always wonder like I look back at so history and I look back at colonization. And I think, like, how I, was it because we, I mean, I know it's because we, like, stole everything and raped and pillaged everywhere. Um, but I guess we had the guns first. And that's kind of how we got. Oh, I we, think, yeah, we brought them over from, we got, white people brought them over from England. And, and we everything. didn't play, we didn't fight fair. Nobody fought fair. And, and But so, in war, you don't. But, I mean, I think it was just, a, <clears throat> not saying it was okay at all, but. <clears throat> I guess you don't. I mean, history is filled with brutal, awful war and conquering, and you and yeah. like if you look at the, you know, Europe and everything, and just like the, the you know, uh, Attila the Hun and the, uh, you know the Huns and the Genghis Khan and the people just pillaging and taking over, and people throughout history have changed and mixed and become different and. You know, Greek and Romans, you know, fought, fucked each other and all this, you know, crazy yeah. like, rape. I mean, like, it's just amalgamation of, and it's always been just the most brutal have survived. You know, it seems like, like the more violent you are, the more you're going to conquer people. And then I think it, I think it trait, used to be that way. I think now in an enlightened society, it's, it should be different. It's different. Yeah. Are we enlightened or are we not? Just when we think we are, then there's all right. these murders it, it, and rapes. Well, and, and not only that, there's like half, like 30% of the country that thinks that all these racist that, fucks. that thinks yeah. that we should be back to back. Yeah. Back those days. Confederate and flags and stuff. Fucking, That's just ignorance though. Yeah, really. Ignorance and fear. 
uh, is really what it is. And it's just fear of the unknown. Fear of the zero-sum game. It's, it's kind of something we talked about with Rod and Karen on the Black Hat Tips, uh, which check out the most recent episode. It's called Freezer Dicks that we were on. But I think just kind of... Freezer uh, Dicks is what they named it. Yeah, they named it Freezer Dicks. Uh, Rod, Karen, somebody said something about... Uh, man, I can't remember what... I think Rod was talking about somebody he was impressed with who... Oh, uh, wasn't that King Cole? Uh, somebody who had gone out and lived a bunch of different places and, and learned and became and yeah. grew and whatever. And, and that's the whole thing. It's like all this fear and these horrible racist people are all people that are just stuck in one place and have never met anybody different than them. They've yeah. never been around anybody different. And that's why a lot of times people go to college and, and change become liberal. <laughs> because you you get other people's perspective. Yeah. You go away from well, home. Well, you realize what you were taught is not educated. true. Yeah, you, you learn from people who've been all around the world. And the more people mm-hmm. you're exposed to, that's why I would tell everybody, if you can travel, possibly travel, travel. just travel. Just don't stay in your own little town in an echo yeah. chamber hearing from other people who've never left or met, never met anybody. Just assuming yeah. what everybody's like. And it's just like people are different. and. Mm-hmm. Everybody's been through something different, and everybody's a human, and everybody's got thoughts and feelings and experiences, and I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm glad you're my neighbor. Won't you be I'm your my wife. neighbor? Won't I mean, you I'm please? your husband. Won't you I thought please? I was your wife. Anyway. All right. Like the Montgomery bus, bus boy. Oh, yeah, we did that already. So, uh, so these guys in Tallahassee. Was it Tallahassee? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even with much harassment from local police, students in the local community sustained the boycott through December 1956 when the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling in a case that originated from the Montgomery boy, bus boycott. Shortly that, thereafter, Steele and other local leaders boarded the segregated buses and sat in seats reserved for whites without being ordered to leave. A month later, the city repealed the segregated seating ordinance. Nice. So they did something, and they made yeah. a difference. I'm sure it still wasn't perfect. But no, in 1956, but it started a change, and that was before the civil rights movement. So yeah, I mean, yeah. shit like that had to pre predate the civil rights yeah. movement. But yeah, it's amazing. It's just, I think it's so easy to just throw up your hands. But it'll never change. There's nothing I can do. But I don't believe that through strife and everything, there is stuff you can do. Well, and I think people get scared to talk about it. I think white people are terrified to talk about race. Even now, you mean even yeah, now. just even now, just even now. Yeah. Like well, I, then so many of them were afraid. They just let the angry, hate-filled people run everything. And there was probably white people who didn't. I often wonder, why am I not racist? You know, like, why? you grew up, like, in that. But, yeah, I mean, because my parent, my mom, then I think, why wasn't my mom? And why yeah. weren't her parents? Like, my grandparents were yeah. born in the 20s. Like, most people probably, my, white people my were. My grandparents were were racist they were my grandparents never said any never were mm-hmm. they didn't really talk about it though like you said they didn't talk about it they didn't like actively say hey, you know maybe they did i don't but i don't they didn't really talk about it they just didn't talk about it so i don't know why they weren't it'd be interesting to ask them like why weren't you or did you know people were that were i'm sure they did i don't know why i didn't ask them about it i don't know but yeah i'm sure they said things that were not PC well, yeah. here and there. But anyway, but I've always wondered, like, why, how come some of us aren't, you know, it's because we're educated or Yeah, and well, whatever. it's because you, you're educated and you're, you're exposed to 
folks of all different kinds of walks of life and you realize that we're all the same you know that it's a lie we're all in the same gang michelle a oh god he has thunder there's some major thunder thunder. i hope we don't lose power we're here before we lose power okay let me get through now we're in june okay awesome of 1956 okay uh and we got a a june birthday One of the greatest actors of all time, so I had to include this. On June 4th, mm-hmm. American actor known for Platoon, and there's something about Mary, and also known for for um, Hot Pursuit, which is the, one of the greatest Charlie movies of all Sheen? time. Born in New York City. Not Hot Pursuit. Not that Hot Pursuit. The one starring John Cusack. John Cusack? No. no. <laughs> Born in New York City, New oh. York. Keith David. You know who that Larry is? Larry David? Born in Harlem, New York. No, Keith David. No, I don't know who Keith David is. Raised in Corona, Queens. Yes, you do. He's been in everything. His mother, Dolores, was a manager at at New York Telephone, and his father, Lester Williams, worked as a director of payroll operations. Let me pull up his picture. Keith David? Yes. He does a lot of voices. He's been in a million movies. That guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I love him. I love him so much. Yes. He's just got a great voice, and he's been in so was many Was he the things. guy that said, look into my eyes, in Alien movie? Was he in the Alien movie? He uh, played the sergeant. I, I didn't really see Alien movies. Let me see. Probably uh, not. Movies and TV shows. He was in The Princess and the Frog. They Live. I knew he was in They Live. I was going to say that. Uh, he's the voice on Rick and Morty. He's the president, I think. Greenleaf. Nope. He was in Nope. Uh, the Nice Who Guys. Was nope? Dead oh, Presidents. He was the, he was the, the dad. In Nope, the dad that falls off the horse. Oh, at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm uh, pretty sure that's what he was. Gargoyles, yeah, The Thing, Something About Mary, Adventure Time, Men at Work, Requiem for a Dream, Pitch Black, Armageddon, wow. Roadhouse, ATL, Top. He's been around forever. Barbershop. Wow. Uh, Platoon. I think I mentioned that one already. You did. I've never seen Platoon. I didn't either. I don't ever want, I don't like war. I don't want to. I know. Death I've never funeral. seen Saving Private Ryan either. Or yeah. Platoon, or like Deer Hunter, have, or any yeah. of those movies. I've we just have like those. a war, an officer and a gentleman he was in. What's the other one that's supposed to be so so rough to watch that everybody says you got to see though? Uh, Titanic. No, the other war movie, not Apocalypse Now. Is that a war movie? Yeah, yeah. I think I watched that one. Is that the one I'm thinking of? I don't like any war movies. Platoon, I always just think of from, I think it's Naked Gun where Leslie Nielsen, <laughs> uh, he falls in love with that girl and he's. They show a montage of them being in love and going on dates, and they're walking out of platoon laughing. Like, <laughs> God. Yeah, that's the only thing I think of with that. Anyway, uh, Keith David initially intended to become an actor after playing the Cowardly Lion in a school production of The Wizard of Oz, and he went on to study at Manhattan's High School of Performing Arts. Notable alumni include... Listen to this. All these people that went to Manhattan's High School Performing Arts. Oh, I bet it's a lot. Nicki Minaj, Ben Vereen, Jennifer Aniston, Jackie Harry, Liza Minnelli, Paul wow. Stanley, Dom DeLuise, Al Pacino, Billy D. Williams, Ving Rhames, and Omar Epps all went to that school. Jeez. And then Keith David attended Juilliard School of Drama, uh, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in 1979. Anyway, and then June 5th, the U.S. Federal Court ruled... Racial segregation on Montgomery buses, anti-constitutional, day after Keith David was born. Boom. And then four days, A. Keith David, 
uh, American Richard fits from now on. Every year is going to be how many months after Keith David was born. Okay. No, we're not playing no, that. We're not, doing we're that. not doing that game. Okay, on June eighth, nineteen fifty six, American Richard B. Fitzgibbon Jr. was the first official death of the Vietnam War. What? Yeah. So the Vietnam War just started. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm really okay. So up front, Richard Fitzgibbon. I'm really, really bad at dates. Oh yeah. Like I don't. I can't remember. I can remember kind of what decade stuff happened in. Even though we do this fucking podcast, but I'm, yeah. you know, I'm usually kind of stoned, so that's. And we go in order, but backwards. Like so it's really confusing. Backwards. I'm yeah, sitting there thinking, did Rosa Parks happens in the '60s, right? Or did it happen already? Rosa Parks was in the '50s. We it just was in talked the '50s. Okay, like a couple of weeks, a couple like in '55. Oh, that's right, because she thought of Emmett Till when yeah. she. That's right. That's right. Remember, See, because then, I couldn't remember if yeah, he had Emmett done it in Till the 60s. Emmett Till inspired her in 55. That's Emmett right. Till happened in the summer of 55. She was inspired by that fall, winter yeah. 55. And that inspired the Montgomery boy, bus boycott, which That's inspired, right. inspired the Tallahassee one that we're That's just talking right. about right now. So okay, now I got it's, it. It's like a domino. Yeah. But did you know that the first official death of the Vietnam War, this Richard Fitzgibbon guy, he was not killed in action, but he instead was murdered by another American airman. Oh. It's a murder. In the war, in the Vietnam War, and he's the first one to kill. Why did he do that? Yeah, so uh, he was murdered by another American airman, Staff Sergeant Edward C. Clark. On the day he was shot, Fitzgibbon had apparently reprimanded Clark for an incident on a fight, uh, flight that day. When Clark went off duty, he began drinking heavily at a club at the base. When he exited the club, he saw Fitzgibbon across the street playing with some local children giving out candy. Clark drew his sidearm and shot Fitzgibbon several times. Clark fled the shooting scene and exchanged fire with v- Vietnamese policemen who were chasing him. During the pursuit, Clark jumped or fell, not clear, to his death oh from God. a second-story balcony. Fitzgibbon died from his wounds on June 8, 1956. Holy moly. Yeah, so the first death of Vietnam War was not in action, but he was murdered by another airman who got drunk and was upset. That's crazy. And then uh, just about... 11 days later, on June 19th, yeah. Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin end their partnership after 10 years and 16 films. Oh, according, what happened? According to Lewis, the two did not speak to each other privately for 20 years. After oh, my this, God. To which Lewis later commented, the stupidity of that I cannot expound on. The ignorance of that is something I hope I'll always forget. So after taking the world by storm with one of the most beloved comedy acts of yeah. all time, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis... Bitterly ended their partnership 10 years to the day after it began. 10 years to the day after it began is what Oh, wow. Despite their success, problems began to creep into their relationship. Martin started to feel that Lewis was exerting too much control over their work and began to talk of returning to a solo career. Lewis, who still idolized Martin in many ways, felt betrayed, and before long, the two stopped speaking. They performed a farewell show at the Copacabana on July 25, 1956, exactly 10 years after they had first taken the stage together. Have you heard these stories about the Copacabana? No. Like, it's just, crazy. I don't know where I've heard these. I've, I don't know. I've saw some things, but the Copa was crazy. The really? Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I the think Rat all, Pack know, and like everything. The Rat Pack there and the drinking and the craziness. Like, Yeah. Holy shit. I do think if there was one place, if I could like pop, go travel time, yeah. I would definitely go to the Copa in the, in 50s, the 50s and just like, People what the watch. fuck is happening? You know, what the hell is happening? 
Uh, anyway, they both had success after they broke up. Despite their success and the passing of time, they continued not speaking to each other. The first attempt at reconciliation came during Lewis's 1976 telethon fundraiser for muscular dystrophy facilitated by Frank Sinatra. The surprise on-air reunion was awkward to watch. Oh, no. Uh, didn't go well. It didn't go well. I don't think it's in the cards, Lewis told People Magazine. All of this is from People Magazine, by the way. Uh he told People Magazine of another possible reunion in 1983. He said, I just don't think it'll work. Our lifestyles and careers are separate and apart, but if you told me he was outside right now, it would be a joy to jump on his neck. But when Martin's oldest son, Dean Paul Martin Jr., was killed in a plane crash in 1987, Lewis attended the funeral and officially made up with his old stage partner, and they would continue to speak on and off until Martin died in 1995. Is Jerry Lewis dead? I think Jerry Lewis just died recently. We better find out. We yeah. better giggle. Can't be lying about that. I think he, I think he died during the pandemic. Oh no, he died in 2017. Okay, but I didn't know that Dean Martin lived until 1995. I didn't know he was around in the 90s. Did you, Dean Martin? Remember seeing? I get pictures him of... confused with Tony Bennett. So I, who's still around? <laughs> yeah. So he's still barely alive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Dean Martin. Yeah. If you look up pictures of him in the 90s, like he, yeah, got really fucking old. He was like an old man. He looked like. He looked like Tony Bennett kind right. of now. Uh, but I didn't know. I didn't realize he was alive until the 90s. Like, I think of him as somebody like, mm-hmm. when you look at him in the 60s and those and those Already. roasts in the 70s and stuff, yeah. his liver looks shot. Like, there's no way that guy's going to live in the 90s. Yeah, uh, that's true. Anyway, so yeah, I didn't know they had a bitter breakup. I didn't even know. I don't know much about Martin Lewis as some enthusiasts do. That brings us to June 20th. When the Venezuelan super constellation crashes in New Jersey and 74 people are killed while dumping fuel in preparation for landing, the airplane, a Lockheed L-1049 super constellation, caught fire and plummeted into the Arctic Ocean of Asbury Park, New Jersey. All 74 aboard were killed at the time. It was the world's deadliest disaster involving a scheduled commercial flight. Oh, And then on June 29th, the U.S. Federal Interstate Highway System Act was signed. Nice. That's when they decided to start making highways. Yes, that was a big, th- big deal. That, that is a big deal. Every like thing in this country. I fell down a rabbit hole looking up because you know you, you take highways for granted because uh-huh. they're just everywhere. Everybody takes them to get everywhere. But, but they weren't there, right? It took it, them like took when people took a trip to days. Florida. Like I think, yeah, like my mom, like she took a trip to North Carolina from Toledo, Ohio. Like she was dating a guy, like. It must have taken her forever. I guess she flew, but if they drove, yeah. I think my grandparents drove to Florida. Yeah. Like, you just drove on back roads. Yeah, it would take <laughs> you crazy. forever to imagine. do anything. It's nuts. So it's really, so. But it, and then you look online, like, you can mm-hmm. see pictures before and after highways were built. It's yeah. just like nothing and then a giant highway. So it's That a, was Eisenhower's big thing. Was yeah, the it was a big deal. Highway system, and it, yeah. it changed everything yeah right here 1956 mm-hmm. really changed every, like the economy and everything right yeah it was like the it was like kind of like the similar to how the internet changed everything which is like the highway of information yeah there's this a lot of information on the internet june 30th 1956 there is no there really is a lot of information you're, you're, out there. Uh, yeah, okay good thanks i'm glad well and you're recently talking. i was watching some uh wrestling pay-per-views from 1997 Jesus Christ. and the internet was new so there were all they used it for was you can chat with a wrestling superstar if you're on the internet. Oh my God. If you're connected to the internet, now, but some people still weren't. Anyway, June 30th, 1956, uh, in Asbury Park, New Jersey, I guess just the same month as that crash, 
Uh, in the summer of 1956, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers were among the first bona fide rock and roll stars. Oh. The New York City bass quintet, fronted by the charismatic 13 year old singer Frankie Lyman, had achieved stardom after their first single, The Wistful Why Do Fools Fall in Love. You know that song, yes. right? Yep. It was released in January of 1956 and soared to number six on the Billboard Pop Singles chart after topping the R&B chart for five straight weeks. In Asbury Park, Joseph William and Albert Redeker, jewelers who had been leasing uh, Convention Hall from the city for 10 years, the Convention Hall from the city for 10 years, were looking for a rock and roll act to book for a summer show at the venue. The year before, their show at the casino on the boardwalk featured Bill Haley and his Comets of Rock Around the Clock fame. It was, and that was a huge success. Yeah, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers appeared to be worthy successors, even to parents who despised the startling new sounds of rock and roll. The teenagers appeared non-threatening. They wore suits and ties, jackets, or in some cases, including a TV appearance, white sweaters, emblazoned with red tees. They were immensely popular, and so the Redickers booked them for a show at the convention hall on June thirtieth, nineteen fifty-six. Ira Kreisman, who would later become a Superior Court judge, was 15, and the Redickers were his uncle, so he was excited to be in the convention hall the night of the Frankie Lyman show, selling orangeade for 25 cents a glass. I love them, Kreisman said of Lyman and the teenagers. He remembers the place beginning to fill up with young people. Freddie Price and his orchestra were the opening act, but that wasn't who the kids were there to see. Shortly before 11 p.m., more than 2,700 teenagers, both black and white, had packed the hall. Newspaper accounts at the time said the Redeker brothers had hired five private security policemen to work the show. When that, Ly- that's all? Five yeah, policemen? Five to 2,700 people, yeah. yeah. When Lyman and the teenagers took the stage just before the clock struck 11, the kids pressed forward on the floor to get a closer look at a bona fide rock star. Have you ever been to a concert like that when the oh headliner God. comes on and no. everybody just surges forward? No, but I've yeah, I've seen I've seen it on like... Oh man! Stuff, 1992 New Year's I Eve like Beastie Boys. Oh, I don't either. But the one time I did, yeah, it was all 1992 Florida. New Year's Eve Beastie Boys. I was a teenager. I was in high school, and we got there super early, like like right when they opened the doors. We were there, so we were in the front, yeah, standing room only, right on the middle of the stage the whole time. By the time the Beastie Boys came on, like there's so many people moshing and everything that we were like completely over to the side, and then when the Beastie Boys came out surge was we were up against the wall like ribs you felt like oh ribs are breaking oh i would hate it's just that. nuts it was crazy but i got to slap hands with all the beastie boys so it was very cool uh anyway but that is a thing that happened so uh uh it had been a hot day and temperatures in the hall were sweltering there were more people and more and more and more people christman remembered they came out and started singing and then i heard a lot of hollering and screaming and saw people running the teenagers had barely started their second song when a fight broke out no one seems to know what caused it, but Kreisman quickly saw the outcome. A bleeding man who had been stabbed in the stomach oh, rushed God. up to the orange aid stand asking if he had a napkin to staunch the blood. We didn't have any napkins, Kreisman said. He and the Redeker brother's father, Jacob, grabbed the cash box and raced upstairs, eventually escaping to the outside of the building. As he raced by, Kreisman saw the, f- the fight had spilled out of the convention hall with combatants breaking off pieces of wicker furniture that were located on the side of the building and whacking each other with the wood. Asbury Park police were called to the scene and briefly restored order, and the concert began again. But once again, fighting broke out. By midnight, Joseph Redeker had called off the show. Nearly 3,000 disappointed teenagers spilled out onto the boardwalk. More fights broke out there. According to newspaper accounts at the time, Asbury Park police called for backup, eventually summoning police officers 
from as far away as Red Bank and the Long Branch, wherever those places are. Why are they fighting so much? They're just, I don't know, just angry teens, I guess. Rock and roll just crazes crazes you. Rock and roll is bad, I guess. Police shut down a section of Ocean Avenue, but fighting later broke out in the city's downtown area on Cookman Avenue and on Springwood Avenue on the west side. When it was all over, 25 people were injured, although most suffered only cuts and bruises, and dozens of teenagers were taken into custody, although police only filed charges against eight of them. The results of the melee? The city council attempted to ban rock and roll in Asbury Park. Hmm. Although such a ban was never made official, the council's wrath made the Redeker brothers skittish about bringing rock and roll acts back to Convention Hall or the casino, both of which they operated. So Now, was that teenager's group is that a black group or a white group? The teenagers? Yes. Uh, they probably... Because Bill Haley and the Comets, I think, are black. Oh, I guess they're black. They're black. That kid might be white. You think they're... It's an integrated group? I don't know. I don't know. Can't tell. I think they're black, but it's black and white. Yeah. Picture, but yeah, they're black, right? Yeah. Yes. But some of them look Hispanic. Yeah. Let me see. I think they're. I think they're all. They're probably black. I think so they're all black. Yeah. And who are the other ones? Bill Haley Bill and the Haley? Comets, I think, is a black group too. Or were they? I think Bill Haley's white, isn't he? Comets might be, yeah, they're white. They are. Yeah, Bill Haley's white. Rock around the clock. That's the oh. whitest. Oh, of white. God, what am I thinking of? I think you're thinking of. Who am I thinking of? I don't. I don't. I don't, the, know, I don't know. what I'm you probably Google. thinking of like. I was going to Google. What is Amy thinking of? The platters, or look up the platters. That's who I'm thinking of. That, I think maybe I don't know. They're black. Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. The drifters are also in the and the coasters. drifters and the coasters and all of those guys. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Bill Haley and the Comets were like with that kind of those kind of guys. No, but there was some group that was a white singer and a black band. Yeah, I feel like that I was remember a, that an too. issue that we covered. I think, but now it's like, and that was an issue because they were mixed. You know, well, Nat King Cole I think had a white band. I don't know. Anyway. It's just interesting about? because you were saying because oh, you said the that the crowd was integrated, yeah. But then, yeah. all those fights were breaking out, and I didn't know if like was it a race some of the yeah some of the people didn't or... like that it was integrated or what. I don't it know. didn't say the article I looked up didn't say anything about didn't that. that. I think I got all that from maybe it was Wikipedia. just teenagers. Maybe it was the sharks and the jets were there. Yeah, it could have been anything that started it. Stuff yeah. like that. And then the last thing I have is. Uh, uh, mid-air collision over the Grand Canyon. Whoa. In 1956, commercial flights were allowed to fly any course to their destination and would often detour over points of interest. So, like, they really? would just go over the Grand Canyon to look at it, you know, I guess. so. But this ended in 1956 when these two planes crashed mid-flight over the Grand Canyon. Uh, Yikes. Yeah. On Saturday, June 30th, God, 1956. Can you imagine... Dying in the Grand Canyon, like crashing into crashing the Grand into Canyon. It. When a United Air Yikes. Douglas DC-7 struck a Transworld Airlines Lockheed L-1049 Super Constellation. I say all these things as if anybody knows what the, these mean. I know, right? Some people do. Over the Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona. All 128 on board both airplanes perished. 
making the first commercial airline incident to exceed 100 fatalities. And I'd imagine there's got to be still be parts in the Grand Canyon, right? Like yeah. Crash and fall into the... The airplanes had departed Los Angeles International Airport minutes apart for Chicago and Kansas City, respectively. The collision took place in uncontrolled airspace, where it was the pilot's responsibility to maintain separation. They called it sea and be seen. This highlighted the antiquated state of air traffic control, which became the focus of, a, of major aviation reforms after this. At about 10.30 a.m., the two aircraft collided over the canyon at an angle of about 25 degrees. Post-crash analysis determined that the United DC-7 was banking to the right and pitching down at the time of the collision, suggesting that one or possibly both of the United pilots spotted the TWA constellation and attempted evasive action. The DC-7's upraised left wing clipped the top of the Constellation's vertical stabilizer and struck the fuselage immediately ahead of the stabilizer's base, causing the tail assembly to break away from the rest of the airframe. The propeller on the DC-7's left outboard or number one engine concurrently chopped a series of gashes into the bottom of the Constellation's fuselage. fuselage. Explosive decompression would have instantly occurred from the damage a theory substantiated by light debris such as cabin furnishings and personal effects being scattered over a large area. Oh, man. Uh, The separation of the tail assembly from the constellation resulted in an immediate loss of control, causing the aircraft to enter a near-vertical terminal velocity dive, plunging into the Grand Canyon at an estimated speed of more than 700 feet per second. The constellation slammed into the north slope of a ravine on the northeast slope of Temple Butt and disintegrated on impact instantly killing all aboard. An intense fire fueled by aviation gasoline ensued. The severed tail assembly, badly battered but still somewhat recognizable, came to rest nearby. The DC-7's left wing to the left of the number one engine was mangled by the impact and was no longer capable of producing substantial lift, and the engine had been severely damaged as well, and the combined loss of lift and propulsion left the crippled airliner in a rapidly descending left spiral from which recovery was impossible. The mainliner collided with a south side cliff of Shuar Butt and disintegrated, instantly killing all aboard. God. And that was David Allen Greer's birthday. The, on that day that when that, that happened. happened? Yeah. David okay, Allen I got Greer a stupid was born question. the same day as that crash. Yeah. So, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I haven't either. Is there, is there stuff the on the bottom of the Grand Canyon? Like, are there stores and stuff on the bottom of the Grand Canyon? Oh, like, are people down there? Do people live on the bottom of it, or what? I don't think you can... I don't think you can go down to the bottom of it, but I don't know. I don't know. Is it down? I don't know anything about the Grand Canyon. My mom and dad went there. I should ask them. Ask them. And Andy went there when he moved out to L.A. Should I ask? How do I ask this? Is there stuff? Can it, you go to the such a dumb bottom question. of the Grand Canyon? Oh, wait. Here we go. People have asked it. Can you go to the bottom of the Grand Canyon? There are three ways to reach the canyon floor. You can do it by foot, following the many inner canyon trails, including the popular Kaibab or Bright Angel Trails from the South Rim. And I guess there's other ways. So maybe there is stuff. How hard is it to get to the bottom of the Grand Canyon? It's 6,000 feet deep. A journey to the bottom of it requires training and planning for months in advance. So so I don't think there's any stores. There's no stores. (laughs) (laughs) I love that your first question is, are there stores? (laughs) I just didn't know if you could even go. What's at the bottom of the Grand Canyon? I want to go shopping on the bottom of the Grand Canyon. What's at the bottom of the Grand Canyon? Phantom Ranch. A series of stores. No. Phantom Ranch at the bottom of the Grand Canyon is a popular destination for both hikers and mule riders. Overnight hiker dormitories and cabins can be reserved, and meals are available for purchase, so that's a store. God, Advanced reservations for meals and lodging at Phantom Ranch. Don't you think something would happen? 
don't you think something would happen to your body going 6,000 feet down like that? Like, Oh, my gosh. Who lives at the bottom of the Grand Canyon? Do people live there? Yeah, the Havasupai oh, is people. Native Americans live Baja. there? Baja. Yeah, an American Indian tribe who lived in the Grand Canyon for at least the past 800 years. You're kidding. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. God, I'm so glad that nobody took it from Is there a town inside the Grand them. Canyon? Aren't you so yeah. glad that nobody took that from them? Did they find pyramids in the Grand Canyon? That's another question. There's well, a lot of now don't start asking. Go, people ask some stupid fucking questions on Google. Have you ever been laid in the Grand Canyon? All right. How deep is the anyway, water in the Grand Canyon? That is 1956. Well, yeah. It, when we're going to end it on David Allen Greer's birthday, who was born to uh, Aretas Ruth, a school teacher, and William Henry Greer, a psychiatrist and writer, who co-wrote the book Black Rage. Did you know that? David Allen no. Greer's dad wrote that? Graduated from Detroit's Cass Technical High School, Forest Green and White, home of the technicians. Notable alumni include Diana Ross, Jack White, and Della Reese. Wow. And David Allen Greer, all went to the same school. You didn't David know that Allen before Greer. this. And he went to the University of Michigan, go blue. He's a Wolverine. David remember Allen when Greer, he would be on? Remember when he was on In Living Color and he would be that hall monitor with that club foot? <laughs> and he would like chase the kids around the hall? I don't remember that. I, oh, my God. I remember he would yell him at from Amazon stuff. Women on the Moon. Tie the so yellow funny. ribbon around the old oak. I like David Allen Greer. You know what? I like that guy. And now we know when he was born. June 30th, 1956. Send him a birthday card, everybody. All righty. And thanks for listening to American Timelines. Where we cover David Allen Greer's birthday and plane crashes and old ladies who bludgeon to death. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. Oh, it's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Yeah, it is time to get out of here. Chuck Berry. We love all of you more than a Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music. <laughs>